I'm that weird person that wants to be like, oh, you're Filipino too? The the woman who I've seen like in the yard speaking in Tagalog and like I could hear their voices carrying down the street. And I was like, <laughs> I like that. I want to say hi and be like, I'm Filipino too. Then you're going to have an auntie down the street. Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado, which is the traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my own all-natural skincare business called Chuan Skincare, C-H-U-A-N, and sharing my marketing tips on my blog, The Cultivate Method. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing account on Instagram at i.hope.so. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based out of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippinex American woman, a lawyer, and a sewing enthusiast. You can find me on Instagram at at Nicole Angeline Sews. So before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? Sure. I am working on an Adrian blouse from Friday Pattern Company to give mm-hmm. as a gift to my brother's girlfriend. The the Adrian blouse, you, you're familiar with it. I've well, yeah, we, sh- we wore matching ones one day. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was amazing. It's so it's a for those unfamiliar, it's a knit top with billowy statement sleeves that are gathered on the shoulders and elastic sleeve hems. And I rarely make for others because I have so little time for sewing anyway that I just want to keep it for myself. But the Adrian blouse is so simple and easy to make. Like there's three pattern pieces and one of them is like a tiny neckband. So it's so high impact. It's so easy to make that I think it's probably one of my tried and true patterns, you know, like a TNT pattern. So I have some fabric already in my stash that I know she'll like, and I'll make one to give her for her birthday. Which was in April. So (laughs) better late than never, I like to say. What about you, Ada? Does she know that she's getting it? (laughs) She does. You you can't make something for someone without like talking to them about it. At least I don't think I can't. I saw, you know, I have to ask her about her measurements, et cetera. But she, she understands. It's fine. It's great. What are you working on? I'm stash or scrap busting. Sorry. And I am starting out with some underwear. So I made a bunch of knits over the winter and spring. So I had a bunch of knit scraps, which seemed very wasteful. So I'm making some underwear from the free Megan Nielsen pattern called the Acacia Undies, which I think is a low rise bikini cut is the technical name for it. And so since I like to cut scraps as I go, I have been sitting on these cut out underwear pieces for a while and I have like 10 pairs of them ready to go in different colors and with different elastics but um I'm also desperately in need of new underwear <laughs> it's fair like, shameful how long it has been since I have gotten new <laughs> underwear and it's the only thing that's holding me back on these is like the elastic because it's kind of a pain in the butt you have so many options you can use pico elastic fold over elastic and 
other types of like you could even use quarter inch like mask elastic and and wrap it around so the options are really endless i'm trying out fold over elastic which is flat and already kind of creased in the middle so when you fold it it's easier but oh, it's yeah. just so finicky because it's such a small seam <laughs> like it's i mean you know i'm not saying that my legs are super small or the leg holes are super small but Compared to like the length of a bodice or dress seam, it just feels so much more like tiny and minute and I have to be very detail oriented. <laughs> I have really big clumsy hands. So like working with tiny pieces seems like it would be a nightmare for me. Exactly. Pins everywhere. <laughs> So for those of you who have been with us since day one, you might remember that our first episode on the Asian Sewist Collective podcast was an introduction to cultural appropriation in sewing. And we defined cultural appropriation in that episode, or we tried to, and we basically came to the conclusion that it is pretty difficult to pin down the concept of cultural appropriation and we shared some examples in sewing and outside of sewing and in that time we had a few listeners send us emails and messages in response and so we thought it would be interesting to go through them before we dive into this week's episode. So first of all we got an email from Katie who asked about instances of non-white groups dominating other groups such as the idea of Pan-Asian culture purported through East and Southeast Asia by the Japanese. And we've intentionally avoided bringing up examples of people of color taking cultures of other people of color for their own because we really want to keep the focus on white supremacy here. And when I say white, I am specifically referring to white people and not people from other racial groups with lighter skin tones. Remember, Cultural appropriation occurs when a dominant group of people, most often white people, takes from an oppressed and marginalized group of people and profits from that action in some manner. That's honestly like a 10,000 foot, very high level statement, but I know, <laughs> you know, we're going to dive into it later in this episode. Oh, for sure. And before we do that, maybe we can address another message that we received. So if you recall, in episode one, we talked about a simplicity pattern, the S8654, that I found on the Simplicity website as an example of cultural appropriation in the sewing community. And this pattern is a vintage style two-piece set cute vacation top, I think is what I called it, a tie top with sleeves and shorts. And I called it out because the garment had been styled with a paper parasol umbrella, which is a cultural icon or object. And I shared my experience teaching for a summer in Mainong in Taiwan, which is a village that's famous for their paper parasol umbrellas. And Gwen, who goes by GwenStella.Made on Instagram, hey Gwen, brought it to our attention that the paper parasol umbrella is a very popular accessory in the rock and roll, rockabilly, and vintage community. And so in that context, it's still being used as a prop, but it is being used with the intention of being a prop. And she pointed out that that specific pattern was likely being marketed towards people who are part of this subset of the sewing community. And she shared that she's attended events geared toward this community before, like vintage fairs, car shows, dances, and she's seen people, predominantly white people, carrying them around along with paper fans. And so apparently if you Google Rockabilly and Parasol, you will see plenty of images of people in very similarly coordinated outfits. Nevertheless, 
Gwen still felt that it was appropriation in action and wanted to share that she also cringed at herself looking back at previous photos, feeling that white people have helped her feel that her culture is cool. Gwen, if I haven't mentioned at this point, is Asian. And she shared that she was feeling a little bit of that cringy, like, why did I do that? Which I think many of us, at least I have definitely felt that way as well about certain situations looking back now too. Yeah, totally. And thanks, Gwen, for sharing your thoughts with us on paper parasol umbrellas. Now, these parasols were on my mind for quite some time after we recorded episode one as well. And maybe like you listeners, or if you listeners are doing the same thing, I have been thinking about, you know, instances in the past where cultural appropriation may be lurking and I didn't realize it, or perhaps I perpetuated it myself. Now, I'll front what a, the story I'm about to tell with that I am sharing it with permission. My sister uh, got married 11 years ago this year, and for her wedding, she sourced several items from the Philippines, including a lace parasol for her, fans for her guests, and paper parasols for her bridesmaids. So it was a beach wedding, very hot. And her thought was, I would like parasols to... <laughs> that my bridesmaids could carry with them, you know. And my sister, like me, is also Filipino-American. All items were purchased in the Philippines. My dad was physically working with local vendors. He was there for a vacation or something. And he brought back the lace parasol, so a payong in Tagalog, the fans, pamaypais, also just a Tagalog word. And both the lace parasol and the pamaypais to me were very distinctly Filipino in style. But the paper parasols, I had never really thought about them as being Filipino. And if I just set them next to those items, they definitely don't look distinctly Filipino. But I also now today, you know, was wondering how paper parasols ended up in a venue with a vendor that, you know, provides wedding stuff, you know, like the, it was offered for the Philippines, in the <laughs> Philippines for wedding ceremonies. So there was the, the payong, the pamaypay, and the parasol. They were all together. So after we recorded episode one and Ada asked me, well, you're not going to make that simplicity pattern and walk around with a paper parasol, right? And I remember I responded during the episode and you can probably hear like the gears grinding in my head. I was like, uh, uh no, n- no. And go to the our Instagram account. <laughs> that clip is on there. It was a preview. And right after I said no, I just my sister's wedding flashed into my head, which again, mind you, happened over a decade ago. Now I know it's not the same as someone using parasols as a prop, you know. But I wanted to share this because thinking through cultural appropriation is something that has been a journey for me. Just you know, in doing this podcast, and you know, of course, for that I am grateful. I know that. Very broadly, there's a complex, centuries-long history of travel, trade, and colonization with regard to the Philippines and the rest of Asia and Spain and America. Now, for example, just a non-sewing example, there's a cultural dance that's performed called Sinkil, which originated from the Maranao people in the southern, now predominantly Muslim, region of the Philippines. And the dance is the pre-Islamic interpretation of the ancient Hindu epic, the Ramayana. The traditional clothing associated with this dance looks nothing like cultural dress that evolved from Spanish influence in the northern regions, such as the Maria Clara or the Terno. 
And all that is to say, you know, neither my sister or I considered whether the paper parasol was part of Philippine culture. And I'm still not really super clear on this. I did what most people do, and I did a Google search. Um, (laughs) I searched about paper parasol umbrellas, and I soon after found that oil paper umbrellas were first created in mainland China during the Eastern Han Dynasty, 25 to 220 AD. They were then spread to Japan and Korea during the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907 AD, and then to other Asian cultures over the centuries. There's also a long history of Chinese people traveling through and settling in the Philippines, trading with Filipino people even before Spain colonized the Philippines in the 16th century. So it wouldn't surprise me if the oil paper umbrella, the paper parasol, were adopted in the Philippines. Do I have an answer? I do not. Google didn't give me the answer. (laughs) But I do know that there's cultural significance to these umbrellas. They're were and still extensively used in Chinese and Japanese weddings, as well as traditional performing arts. So was using the parasols at my sister's wedding cultural appropriation? When you consider all the facts above, and also acknowledging that my sister and I are not aware of or celebrate any Chinese or Japanese ancestry, I still don't have an answer. You know, I don't think it's appropriation to carry a paper parasol umbrella as part of your sister's wedding. It's clearly, you know, by the fact that you shared all of that context, part of Filipino culture now and setting aside the question of how the umbrellas got to the Philippines in the first place. I'm also not saying that like these umbrellas only belong to anyone of Chinese or Taiwanese or Japanese descent. It it just definitely doesn't belong to white people like a hundred thousand percent doesn't belong mm. to y'all. Fair. It does go back to the definition of cultural appropriation and the context of the situation, right? Like your situation is very different from modeling a simplicity pattern with the parasol as they did for the pattern photo shoot, which now with Gwen's context tells me that the pattern was purposefully shot and meant to be marketed towards white rockabilly folks who treat parasols as a prop and not as a cultural object. And I know that some of our members of the collective and some of our listeners don't have a problem with us enjoying each other's cultures as long as it doesn't perpetuate oppression. And so here's one opinion from our researcher, Jaina. If you want to collect Japanese fabrics because you're a fabric lover and they bring you happiness, she thinks that's fine, maybe even wonderful. It becomes problematic when you don't know any Japanese people, you do know Japanese people, but you commit racial microaggressions against them in your daily life, you fetishize Japanese culture and perpetuate racism towards Japanese people, Japanese Americans, Asian Americans, you whitewash their culture and their history or claim it for yourself or profit off of them while centering yourself and decentering Japanese people and their businesses, and so on and so forth. And that's when a Japanese fabric collection becomes problematic. And it all really basically comes back to white supremacy, right? Like if that didn't exist, we could totally just love everything and it would the world would be amazing. A world without white supremacy. Sure would be, yeah. <laughs> and with regard to cultural appro- cultural appropriation, you know, I'm an overthinker. I'm also very, I'm a critical thinker and critical of myself. So I'm a critical overthinker. And this has just been a real journey. And Jaina echoes my thoughts to a T. I feel like she's defined cultural appreciation without sounding like she's granting permission in any way. 
So moving on to another listener feedback that we got, we received a message from Gail, who goes by gail.so.glasgow on Instagram. She asked if, as a white Scottish woman, it would be disrespectful for her to repurpose fabrics from kimonos and other projects. She bought two from a vintage clothes fair where there were literally hundreds of kimonos on sale, and she only bought the kimonos for the fabrics. So she's presumably going to deconstruct them and make other things. Ada and I are not experts in this matter. Neither of us are Japanese. So rather than to give a straight answer in this case, we'd like to highlight what Gail's doing in her effort to find an answer. And she does have a game plan in progress. She plans to learn more about kimonos and their cultural significance, figure out why they ended up at a vintage clothes fair in Scotland, learn you know, what kimonos are, what they can and should be used for today, learn more about cultural appropriation in general, and then come to a conclusion on whether she can celebrate the beautiful fabric and their origin without causing or reinforcing harm. We also directed Gail to a couple of great resources to learn about kimonos. At made.by.yuki on Instagram is a prominent voice on the cultural appropriation of the kimono. So we recommended that Gail check out her work as well as the work of At Little Koto's Closet, whom we referred to in episode one. Gail has saved her kimono journey stories in a highlight on her Instagram. So if you want to check it out and learn with her, by all means, I encourage you to do it. It's her Instagram again, and we'll link it in the show notes, is at gail.so.glasgow. I can't speak on behalf of Japanese people to say whether it's okay to repurpose kimono fabric, but it seems like she's making room and being respectful of the Japanese culture. Yes. And don't forget to support Emmy and Yuki for their work. So that's at made.by.yuki and at little Kodo's closet on Instagram if you enjoy their work and you benefit from the information that they've shared. We also got another email, this time from Farah, who's Pakistani American. And she says she's alarmed that white people are being told to stay away from using foreign terms altogether to name garments. So if you remember in episode one, we talked about many pattern makers removing the word kimono from some of their patterns that were not kimonos and did not resemble actual kimonos. And Farah feels that by doing this, the white majority that are designing most of the patterns available to all of us are being encouraged to stay away from appreciation of other cultures. And whether this is through the naming of their garment or the construction techniques. But the thing I want to point out here is that we don't actually need white people to be actually actively appreciating our cultures for us to be represented. Representation and appreciation are two different concepts. So appreciation, which we'll dig into shortly, comes up when there's a mutual relationship of respect and love from both sides of the equation. So the person with more power commits themselves to truly understanding the culture that they're taking aspects from. They don't profit in return from this action and has some sort of connection or tie with the other person. This is not a white pattern designer making a pattern based off of an Asian garment and profiting from it. And I would argue that the patterns that we've seen pulled or updated have been pulled or updated because the white designer has now recognized that they have not taken the time to do that work, right? To understand the culture they have taken their design inspiration from and that they personally profited from those designs. Representation, on the other hand, means actually having a diverse set of people who reflect the real world and not just a white-only world appear in the media and other mainstream channels. This 
normalizes us and our cultures in everyone's lives. And you hear representation matters a lot because it creates the context in which we believe that we can exist and succeed. So take Kamala Harris, for example. She is mixed race, Black and South Asian, and a woman, and she's many firsts, right? If you look at why so many people, including myself, were excited to see her become the vice president, it's because by her actually achieving that position of power, we all saw that a woman and a woman of color, a mixed race woman of color, could specifically, with immigrant parents, make it in politics and rise to the second highest office in the land. And even if you might have gone around saying a woman can become VP or president before that in the U.S., I don't think any of us truly, really believed it until we saw this happen. And mm -hmm. when you have representation, then you're actually on the right path towards inclusion. So back to appreciation versus representation. Appreciation by someone in power could lead to them making room for the other person to be seen and heard, but it's not a prerequisite for representation, right? Representation can happen without it. The question I would pose to you, Farah, and anyone else who wrote in defending whiteness is, why are you seeking white approval? Like, why is it so important to you? And I would suggest taking some time to unpack that and maybe dig into how white supremacy has potentially invaded your own perspective or influenced your perception of culture. For me, the more I've learned about white supremacy and how it's really infiltrated our communities, for example, with the model minority myth, the more angry I get about how we've changed our own cultures and we've changed our own communities just so that white people could feel comfortable. Like we should be comfortable too. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's taken it's taken work to get to that point, right? Yeah. And I think personally the bigger issue here is that we just need more representation in the pattern making world and I can count on one, maybe two hands, how many Asian indie pattern designers I know of, and I'm sure there are more. So if you are an Asian independent pattern designer, please reach out to us. We would love to include you on our website. We have a directory page, but we need more of you. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had more representative pattern designers who we saw so that us and new sewists could see ourselves in the craft and, and leading the way? And I think it's worth reiterating something we said in episode one, which is there's plenty of Asians who are okay with white people naming box sleeves or grown-on sleeves after kimonos or collections after cities in Japan and so on. But you are not the spokesperson for your nationality or ethnicity and neither am I. I mean, like that would be a lot of work and pressure and responsibility. And so I don't think any of us want to be that person. And the problem here is that we aren't seeing true cultural appreciation when the word kimono or a Japanese city's name is being slapped on a garment. And we'll talk about some examples of appreciation later on, but cultural appropriation clearly has a negative impact on many Asian folks within the diaspora, within the US and other Western countries. And as we saw in the voices of many Asian users who commented on Instagram posts from makers announcing the removal of these terms and patterns, like it does make a difference. You raise a lot of great points here, Ada, and I'm looking forward to reflecting on them more after we wrap up this episode, because that's, <laughs> that's what I do. But let's move on to another email from a listener. Mia is a white Jewish New Yorker who used to live in Japan. And she wrote in and shared that she felt conflicted when her friends in Japan, who had children at the same time she did, 
suggested she sew up some traditional Japanese garments for her children. Now she's wrestling with avoiding cultural appropriation when her life was so intertwined with the Japanese culture. She also had questions on how to respond to cultural appropriation besides not participating in it. Now these are some great questions and issues that we're gonna unpack. In addition to appropriation versus appreciation, we're also going to address how you know if you're culturally appropriating and some actionable steps to take when it comes to cultural appropriation, namely how to keep learning about the topic and how to address it when you do see it happening. One last question, Ada, before we dive in. It's not a question. It's a, it's a thing. It's a thing that I want to talk about. <laughs> and I wanted to share an example of cultural appropriation in sewing that recently came up and that is very close to my heart. And that is my experience with the turno sleeve. Now, you've heard me talk about the turno before, or terno in, with the Filipino pronunciation. It's a, the turno sleeve is the key feature of the turno blouse, or sometimes dress, which is a national dress of the Philippines. Growing up, my mom would call it Filipiniana, but I'll use the term turno here. I won't be digging into the history of the turno today, but there will be a link in our show notes if you want to find out more about how the turno can be, came to be. And if you've never seen a turno sleeve, it's a flat, oversized, high-peaked sleeve that is rounded at the shoulders by pleats. It's easier to just Google it than to imagine it for sure. I wore it like I wore it growing up as a kid, primarily to perform traditional Filipino cultural dances and you know, continued to wear it through college, performing in some international so- showcases. And the making of the sleeve is highly specialized and generally needs to be made to fit the wearer because the drafting is based on the wearer's measurements. When I started to learn how to sew, it became really important for me to learn how to make these and also incorporate them into modern wear. It's a dream of mine to make neat looking uh, turno garments that were traditionally for special occasions, but to bring it into a new era for myself. And I did make my first attempt last year. It was such a rewarding experience to be able to connect with my Filipino culture by making this garment. I watched a video by Shai Lin, who is a member of the Asian Sewers Collective. And that's how I, I found her on YouTube. And then I found her on Instagram. So, and we've just been, I like to think, good <laughs> friends ever since. Um, she may disagree, but whatever, Shai Lin. <laughs> Here's what I want to talk about. You all may have heard of a TV show called The Great British Sewing Bee. Maybe, I don't know. So The Great British Sewing Bee is a home sewist competition. There are usually eight contenders who compete for bragging rights and a trophy. And that's it as far as I understand. It's very popular. It's, um, I would be surprised if our listeners, ha- you know, if they've been sewing for some significant amount of time, they've probably heard of it by now. And I think it's on air at the moment. They are either, contenders are either given a pattern or a task and they need to complete a challenge related to that pattern or task. Now, I wasn't really aware of it. I am a newer sewist, but someone at some point told me that they have a quote unquote international week every season or most seasons. And from what I can tell, international week is highly problematic in terms of cultural appropriation, but nobody is talking about it. And before you think, oh, you know, they're appreciating and highlighting different cultures, sharing these cultures with, with the world or, you know, the presum- presumably the primarily British audience. Now, let me tell you 
exactly how infuriating it was to see the turn sleeve on this show. I just need to take a breath there. Um, okay. <laughs> I, so contestants were given a turno pattern and there was also a sample turno garment on a dress form. While this garment was being described, it was three, you know, white people who are the hosts and they were breaking down the general construction of the garment. There was maybe 43 seconds about the history of the turno. So you timed it. I don't remember exactly. It was short. It was brief, but I I I wanted to say it's less <laughs> than a minute for sure. Now, why was this so upsetting? Maybe listeners are wondering about this. Like I said, making the turno sleeve is a highly specialized skill. It's difficult to learn. I'm struggling with learning from it. There are people in the Philippines who are considered master turno makers. There's also an entire movement in the Philippines to bring it into the modern era. So like I said, make it something that is proud to be part of Philippine culture. And look for something called TurnoCon. It's a turno-making convention and contest for regional designers that's held annually in the Philippines. Find hashtag TurnoCon on Instagram, and I guarantee you, you'll love what you'll see. So just backing up, the episode was season six, episode eight. So it came out in June 2020. It wasn't a turno sleeve. It was just a puff sleeve. That flat side, that distinctive flat side was nowhere to be seen. And frankly, this was insulting to me. The great British sewing bee took a garment that is personally significant to me and distinctive to my Filipino culture, a recognizable national emblem of the Philippines, and bastardized it for a sake of a three-hour sewing contest. Also, when they were being handed this pattern, this turno pattern, I was like, do they even consult a Filipino designer in this? And maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but we don't know. Like, I would say presumably not someone of Filipino descent because they would incorporate the flat side. And if they were of Filipino descent and this was their interpretation of the turno, their work should have been acknowledged. The designer should be, we should know who the designer is, know what their work is about. That's appreciation. And I was already mad about all of this, you can tell. I was already mad about it all. <laughs> One of the hosts, again, a white man, made a joke about something turnoing him off. No. Sorry, I'm at a loss for words. There, there was a lot of like pausing and yelling when I was watching this. And it's my understanding that this gentleman or man was a, it's my understanding that he's a comedian and this is like his type of humor, but I was not having any of it. And I should also add that this was maybe in the first eight minutes of the entire episode. Oof. Blood was boiling. Now, yeah. I do want to tie this back to cultural appropriation since we spent some time in episode one defining it. So we have white people um, who have power taking from an oppressed and marginalized group of Filipinos. Now, I don't know who the producers are or the directors or the showrunners. I do know that the hosts, the three hosts are white. I think in a vastly predominantly white country, I would assume that folks at the BBC or whatever network this is on are going to be predominantly white. I would imagine there aren't Filipino voices or at least many 
if any, at any of these tables. Now, they're profiting off of my culture here. Viewers aren't directly paying them, of course, but the hosts are being paid to be on the show and talk about a garment that's so important to my culture. And no doubt, they are getting paid far more to be on this show as a oppressed Philippinex person who is maybe making and selling the turno for others to wear. And by making this bastardized version of a turno on a show that's widely viewed in a Western country, they're contributing to the erasure of my culture. Probably the most upsetting thing about all of this that I keep coming back to is for a moment, just a split second, I question whether they were right. I was just learning how to make turno myself. It's been less than a year since my first attempt. Maybe they knew more than me. They're presumably experts, right? The the judges are, you know, experts in home sewing at least. And maybe they knew more than I did. And I checked in with Shailen, uh, someone I've mentioned already a couple of times, and she reassured me. She said, no, you're right. The flat sleeve is literally what makes it a turno. So... I was just so upset that I let these people who took a piece of the national dress of my people and corrupted it. And I believed that for one second, an instant, a moment, that they knew more about my culture than I did. And you know what that is? That's white supremacy ingrained in my thinking. Maybe, just maybe these white experts in sewing knew better than me, when deep down, I know I have more experience than them, having lived with it, having worn the garment, and I'm studying it now. I remember talking with you about this, and you were working through a lot of feelings about it, and I'm glad you were able to share them with our listeners, and I'm sure you're not the only one. I rewatched when you were telling me about your reaction. I rewatched the episode and I Googled what a Terno was after. And I remember thinking like, that's, that's not it. Nicole is right. Mm-mm. And so then I went back and I rewatched all of the quote unquote international or global week episodes from all the past Sewing Bee seasons. And I think the running theme that I felt in the episodes from the last four seasons where they've had these is that they are perpetuating appropriation by not actually stopping to give context, explain, or talk about the garments that they are having people do in their pattern challenges. They gloss over them and give not even a minute or two to a clip, and then they exoticize the garment to make it seem cool. And I think part of that is just culturally British, and part of that is lack of awareness by just telling contestants to do a pattern challenge of a cheapow top or a turno sleeve or dhoti pants and to, or telling people to cut up saris. I was like cringing when I saw them cutting up saris, just hacking away to refashion them while also not appreciating that like saris are very difficult to put on and mm-hmm. wrap and pin in place or tuck in place. And By doing that and kind of glossing over the significance of these garments to their respective cultures, they are giving people permission to appropriate without critically thinking about what they are doing. So, for example, um, they did have another challenge for a chi pao top or aka cheng sam. 
I am not Cantonese. I have asked many people, including our producer, Mariko, and my very good friend for help on this one. So that is my try at pronouncing it. It, it. It's a traditional Chinese garment. You probably can visualize it. It's usually in the form of a dress. It has what is called a mandarin collar. And the dhoti, the dhoti pants, are a garment that are usually worn on the lower part of the body. And it's a part of the national costume in the Indian subcontinent. It's kind of like a sarong tied in a manner that resembles loose trousers. And with all of these patterns, they kind of went into a little bit of the technical aspect of what it takes to make them, like what side certain things go on and how many pleats. But in general, I think International Week episodes are problematic, as is the unpaid nature of the show. Like if you're a contestant, you are not paid to go on, um, which inherently means only the people who can afford to do that unpaid labor can be on the show, Hmm. which in COVID times means you're taking off weeks from work and your family. And So there's just a lot of problems, I think, here with the show. Does that mean I can't enjoy watching it? No, but does that mean I now watch it with a different perspective? Yes. And I think UK racism is definitely a little bit of a different flavor from US racism. I think the history and dynamics that created the racism experienced in each country right now are all rooted in white supremacy, but have just developed differently. And, you know, not only have been have there been anti-Asian attacks in the UK, so it does make me sad and angry to know that our ESEA friends in the UK have also been the targets of increased hate crimes. ESEA stands for East and Southeast Asians, which is more predominantly used in the UK than AAPI, which is used in the US. I've included a link to an Instagram post from Gemma Chan, uh, the actor who played Astrid in Crazy Rich Asians in our show notes with more details about what's going on right now. But I think when it comes to cultural appropriation, personally, it's just been a journey of watching these things and reading more and learning more and understanding. Like at first when I watched these episodes, I knew it was wrong and you don't have to understand the definition of appropriation or be able to recite it to spot someone doing it and and be like, that's a wrong feeling um, or that's wrong. It was only relatively recently, I think, over the last few years where I learned more about it and more about where appropriation stems from and why it's wrong that really helped me articulate my thoughts, I think, around things like how the turno sleeve and many other garments have been appropriated by this show. And Most of my race-related reading up to the last year, honestly, had been solely AAPI-focused. So I was focused on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders only, and not focused necessarily on racism and white supremacy as a whole, even though I understood concepts like the model minority myth and how they played into the bigger picture. But if you want to read more about the evolution of AAPI as a community in the U.S., I recommend reading Frank Wu's Yellow and Helen Zia's Asian American Dreams. They're a bit dated now, but they still provide a lot of great context and history, and we'll include links to them and other reading in the show notes. So to come back to this whole topic, um, now that I've had my rant, some people may argue um, that if others adopt the turno sleeve and other cultural garments into their sewing projects, then it should be considered cultural appreciation instead of cultural appropriation. So I have heard this argument from other people, from even Asian people about their own cultures that, you know, it can be appreciation and not appropriation. But with the Great British Sewing Bee, I mean, 
it wasn't appreciation and it's not appreciation. So let's unpack that today. So if you recall again in episode one, cultural appropriation stems from white supremacy, the white dominant culture in the U.S. and other Western culture countries like the U.K., were developed by erasing the cultures and identities of those that they colonized, enslaved, and oppressed. We quoted Emmy Ito, a multicultural educator, on three Ps that are involved when it comes to cultural appropriation. Power, profit, and people. Power that the dominant culture has, taking from another historically oppressed culture. Profit that the person from the dominant culture is typically making in return and people, so the people of the oppressed culture being erased in the process. And the full text can be found in a blog post that we've linked to in our show notes. From these definitions, you might start to see that the key to cultural appreciation is decentering whiteness. So this is why it's not truly appreciation at play if there's an element of exoticism or fetishization involved. Emmy says in the same blog post where she mentions the three Ps, and I'm going to just read her quote directly. Cultural exchange and appreciation at its best happens when there is a depth of commitment on both sides that is based in a relationship of mutual respect and even love. And similarly, here's another quote, this time from Ijeoma Oluo in her book, So You Want to Talk About Race. She says, Appreciation should benefit all cultures involved, and true appreciation does. But appropriation, more often than not, disproportionately benefits the dominant culture that is borrowing from marginalized cultures and can even harm marginalized cultures. Thanks for sharing those quotes on cultural appropriation, Ada. I do want to revisit the wearing a cheap out of prom example <laughs> we shared in episode one. And I know you were personally wondering that, you know, if a white person excused for doing this, if they purchased a dress from a Chinese vendor. From our research for this episode, we can conclude that this action doesn't necessarily excuse the purchaser from appropriative behavior because there isn't any evidence that they've deeply committed to learning about Chinese culture. Uh, There's no evidence of any relationship of that mutual respect that the quotes were just talking about. In this case, it's just a financial transaction, which doesn't predicate the appreciation of a culture. Even the act of purchasing and wearing a cultural garment just because they think it's pretty or unique is rooted in whiteness. For example, the the colonialist mindset that they are entitled to everything, including things that are not theirs. And on the flip side, I'm trying to understand when it's okay to wear or use items belonging to other cultures rather than just preaching, no, don't do whatever. Like for instance, you know, who can give permission <laughs> To someone of another race to do it, does one friend, you know, saying it's okay means that others can't be hurt or complain about it? Those are some really great questions and a cue for us to jump into how to know if you are culturally appropriating. And there's a really great flowchart that was posted a while ago by Fash underscore Rev on Instagram that you can refer to. We will obviously have a link to it in our show notes, but for those of you who can't pull it up right now, I will do my best to boil it down into a few key questions to ask yourself. So number one, where did your idea originate? Unless you're absolutely certain that it's completely unique, you need to keep asking questions. Like number two, whose culture were you inspired by? Your own or someone else's? And if it was truly your own, then you're set. Otherwise, number three, has the culture you were inspired by been historically oppressed and exploited by your own or other cultures? 
And last but not least, number four, will the outcome of your idea contribute to cultural erasure or exploitation of other cultures while enriching and profiting your own? And you can see those questions tie back into white supremacy and the three Ps again. This flowchart is by no means the only way you should assess yourself. Consider it a basic starting point in your education, and you'll have to commit considerable time, like months and years, not just a few hours, to this topic. Listen to a large variety of people, cultural groups, and organizations talk about what they think is appropriative to form an educated answer for yourself. I don't think answers are ever clear when it comes to cultural appropriation. (laughs) Nope. You're not going to get a yes or no that applies to everyone in every situation, for the most part. Let's try to answer some common questions that come out and other concerns now. And let's cover the questions I asked earlier. Who can grant permission for someone to wear or use items belonging to a minority? And does this concept of granting permission exist? Now, to answer this, I'm going to refer to a reel posted by at Amanda Seals recently on Instagram. Amanda Seals is an actor, comedian, and host of the podcast Small Doses. Her father is Black, and she's a dual citizen of the U.S. and Granada. And the gist of her video is that racism is more than just individuals. It's about a system of oppression that individuals, groups of people, and other systems uphold. Cultural appropriation is not about individuals liking or not liking something that other people are doing. Again, it's just another way in which individuals are upholding larger systems of oppression. Just how one Black person saying they don't experience anti-Blackness doesn't mean anti-Blackness doesn't exist. An individual person can't excuse appropriation on behalf of their group. And I think you also had another question that we should address. Is it cultural appropriation if you are asked to wear something that doesn't belong to your culture to a party? Or what if someone gifts you an item and asks you to wear it? I've seen these questions come up in a few examples. So mixed race couples getting married in cultural dress, even though one of them is white. Or personally, I attended an Indian wedding in Australia in 2019, and I struggled with whether it was appropriate for me to show up in a sari, which is a traditional Indian garment. And you might have seen it in some films. It is a garment that consists of a very long strip of fabric wrapped around the waist with one end and draped over the shoulder. And it's usually worn with a fitted bodice and a petticoat underneath. And let me tell you, draping it and putting it on is actually very difficult. Those YouTube videos make it look way easier than it actually is. And in this case, my friend, the bride, offered to lend me something, but I didn't want to impose because, you know, she had a big wedding to plan. And I ended up buying something off of Etsy and following YouTube videos to dress myself. And it was so embarrassing. I did it very, very wrong. And I am definitely not alone in the struggle because there were other Asians and white people at the wedding wearing cultural dress, Indian cultural dress, and I'm sure there are many other non-Indians who face similar dilemmas. And it just, I went through the whole night being like, why did I wear this incorrectly? I bet you all the aunties are judging me right now. And I just got another invite to another wedding that says wedding attire is semi-formal. Feel free to wear either Indian or American, by which they mean Western attire. And I'm honestly, I think I'm going to 
take the easy one out here and wear my Western wedding guest attire to this one. And you'll remember that I defined cultural appropriation earlier. And these examples tie back to the requirement, for lack of a better word, that there should be a mutual or close relationship of respect and love between the two parties. And mixed race parties dressed in cultural garments obviously have that close relationship. They're getting married. And I had that friendship with my friend, the bride, this upcoming wedding, also the bride, and a relationship of mutual respect and love for each other and our cultures. Our producer, Mariko, has a friend named Shana who used to live in Japan, and she asked if it had been cultural appropriation when she wore a yukata gifted to her by a Japanese neighbor to a summer festival. A yukata is an unlined summer kimono worn in casual settings, and the two most popular places to wear them are at summer festivals and to nearby bathhouses. In this case, Shana obviously had a mutual close relationship of respect and love with her neighbor for the neighbor to have given her such a gift. While this friend lived in Japan, she immersed herself in the culture and built strong ties with people there. Right. So hopefully those examples will help many of our listeners understand if they are culturally appropriating in their daily lives. And next up, to address that email we mentioned at the beginning on how to address cultural appropriation when you see it, neither Nicole nor I are experts in this matter. So instead, I will share some anecdotes on how I've addressed it in the past, and you can take from it what you will. So I'm personally a big believer in public praise and private criticism. It doesn't really benefit anyone to have an all-out flaming comment war on social media, and when I'm online and I see a friend appropriating or perhaps not understanding what they're doing, I prefer to message them privately instead of calling them out publicly. For example, a white friend of mine really enjoys different Asian cultures as food, and she kept posting pictures of quote-unquote fried rice that she made, but with her chopsticks stuck straight into the rice, which um, she was doing to clearly stage it to look more Asian, right? Like how else would you know it was fried rice? But mm. I can already, yeah, you groaned. Some other people are probably groaning. Um, listeners, if you didn't know, sticking chopsticks into your rice is a big no-no because it looks like incense sticks at a funeral and is an indicator of bad luck. This is something I got yelled at for doing when I was very little and it stuck with me. And I think many people might have picked that up from their parents or their relatives, but not maybe known the meaning or the significance behind them. So I DM'd this friend saying like, hi, I know you appreciate my culture and other Asian cultures, but uh, FYI, most Asians would never stick chopsticks in rice like that. And I explained the incense and bad luck part. And I was like, this is, this is why we don't do that. And I thought she was going to get defensive. And that's why I provided all that context. But she actually took it really well and hasn't done it since or hasn't posted something like that since. In another food-related example, a local Pan-Asian fusion restaurant where I am based is run by a white woman, and um, they posted that they were hiring, quote-unquote, samurais for their team. Mm. Samurais were warriors in pre-modern Japan, a ruling military class that eventually became the highest-ranking social caste of the Edo period from 1603 to 1867. Obviously, she should not have used this term to refer to her restaurant staff, but that day, I was honestly, I was just too tired to to talk about it, and so I shared it privately, and two white friends actually said in response, 
I understand why this is wrong and why you are tired. I'm going to go reach out and and try to teach this other white woman. Like you can you can take a break today. I'm going to take this one on. And I so appreciated that. Those are some good friends. You can't see <laughs> yeah. my face, but my face is stuck in this like uh face like when you were talking about those specific examples. Oh yeah, <laughs> ninjas, gurus, any job description that has those two either like no. Mm, yeah, I mean, those are some great friends. And I think something to think about is who should be doing the labor of understanding and explaining cultural appropriation. And it really shouldn't be the people who are being oppressed. So, you know, we're not the cultural appropriation police. And, you know, people who are marginalized and oppressed shouldn't be expected to fill this role. We're not here to do the emotional and mental labor of correcting every instance of cultural appropriation and teaching everyone. Now, it's exhausting. Um, if, <laughs> it really it is. Just, it is. And, you know, so we need white allies. If anything, Ada's second anecdote is an example of people in a position of power investigating how they culturally appropriate how they correct themselves and so on and so on. Now, when I say people in a position of power, I am referring to literally all white people in society, plus any people in a hierarchical position of power in an institution. Addressing how you culturally appropriate and what to do about it is a small way to contribute toward active, daily anti-racism work. And for individuals or businesses who think they might be culturally appropriating or get called out on it, like we said in episode one, if you feel yourself getting uncomfortable, we encourage you to really unpack those emotions and try to understand its root cause, right? Take a step back, do some research, and do the deep critical thinking that will help you identify where you might have appropriated a culture that's not your own. And really identify where the three Ps, so power, profit, and people, took place. An example of a business that effectively responded to cultural appropriation is Blackbird Fabrics. Blackbird Fabrics is a sewing fabrics and supply store based in Vancouver, Canada. They put up a great post, which again, we'll link in the show notes, where they, you know, one, publicly stated that they stand in solidarity with the AAPI community. Two, amplified Asian voices, such as quoting Layla of Layla Sews on Instagram, on the use of language when describing fabrics, as well as the language used to describe patterns they sell and promote in their shops. At Layla Sews is the pattern maker at Muna and Broad, which she started up with Jess uh, at Fat Bob and Girl on Instagram. Blackbird Fabrics also clearly and transparently outlined their game plan. They reviewed their inventory and removed any patterns that included appropriative or fetishizing language within their titles and descriptions. They also reached out to pattern designers whose patterns have similarly problematic language and said that they would not restock the patterns until the references are removed. Then, more importantly, they moderated their comments and responded appropriately. Hateful and unconstructive comments were deleted. Another user pointed out that the term anorak refers to a traditional Greenlandic Inuit garment, and that was being appropriated as a name of a generic waterproof jacket pattern. And Blackbird Fabrics acknowledged it and removed it immediately. There are also several instances where they addressed questions and basically took a stand and stuck by it. 
Yeah, they definitely stood out, I think, in the last aspect by properly addressing comment moderation. And this was in a huge contrast to Paper Cut Pattern's Instagram post on removing their pattern collection named on or named for Japanese cities. Paper Cut Patterns is a New Zealand-based sewing pattern design house, and they turned off comments overnight in their time zone, which is daytime in the U.S. or North America, but they still freely allowed others to attack Asians in the comment section, including a few members of our collective and myself included. And only time can tell how legitimately committed Blackbird Fabrics is and Paper Cut Patterns are to anti-racism work. But addressing and correcting cultural appropriation is a step in the right direction. We just have to see what their long-term actions will look like. That's all we have today on this topic. No doubt you're now more aware of cultural appropriation. Hopefully you'll notice it more and more because really it's just everywhere. And the key thing is to keep learning. Check out the resources we have in our show notes, but also do your own research. Keep listening to people who call out cultural appropriation. You should seek multiple opinions on the same issue because individuals, again, you said this, don't represent their larger group, but seek these opinions in a way that you're not further burdening a marginalized individual with zero compensation for their time and effort. Look out for common themes that echo Emmy Ito's three Ps. Reread her article where she dives into cultural appropriation and what appreciation really looks like. And don't forget to support the work of folks who are doing this cultural appropriation work, like Emmy and Yuki. It's been a roller coaster ride for Ada and I, wrapping our heads around this concept, and we still struggle to get it right, even though we talk about it within the collective. So keep on learning. We can only get better. Hey listeners, before we end this episode, after recording, it came to our attention that there was another example of continued cultural appropriation in the sewing community that needed to be addressed. A few years ago, Gertie Hirsch of Charm Patterns collaborated with Butterick and released the B6483 pattern, which is a quote Asian inspired dress, but really let's call it what it is, a bastardized chi pao or chung sam. In a video on the McCall's YouTube channel, she says the pattern was inspired by a Sam and then tries to rationalize the design by saying it was, quote, borrowed very heavily from Western culture around post-World War II, so what I've done is sort of a 50s take on the Sam. Now, I do have to say it looks like this pattern is now out of print, thank goodness, but if you're not familiar with Gertie's work or style, she focuses heavily on vintage and retro patterns. And like we highlighted with the rockabilly targeted prop styling earlier in the episode, sewing vintage style clothing isn't a free pass to culturally appropriate. If a pattern or garment was appropriated in the 50s, that doesn't make it okay to call it vintage and keep doing it now. We all know better now and we should be doing better. But in this case, it doesn't seem like any change was made or learning happened because last summer, Gertie released the Harlow pajamas, which were originally called the Hostess Lounge Set and featured a mandarin collar and frog closures. And she said that this pattern was based on vintage tea timers from Hawaii. And there was immediate and swift backlash looking at the photos. The pattern is basically exoticism and appropriation all in one. So it was revised and renamed, and now it's a round neck pajama top that still has frog closures, and Gertie made a donation to the Asian American Arts Alliance. She then filmed a video to address the history of the Chongsam with Renee of 
Rock and Roll on Instagram, which is not publicly available anymore as of this recording. And I think it's important to, again, highlight that even though one person from a culture might say it's okay, appropriation isn't about individuals not liking something that other individuals are doing. It's just another way in which individuals are upholding larger systems of oppression. And if we go back to the three Ps when it comes to cultural appropriation, power, profit, and people, Gertie is still profiting off of marginalized and oppressed cultures that are not hers. And by continuing to defend her decisions despite the backlash from the AAPI community and Asians around the world, hiding behind artistic freedom and calling the output her take on these cultures, she is also contributing to the erasure of these cultures. And this is yet again a clear example that the sewing world has a long way to go if someone with this much influence still felt it was okay to launch a pattern like that. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. Next week, Ellie Lum of Portland-based brand Clumhouse will be making a guest appearance on our pod. If you like our show, you can support us by following us on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective. That's one word, Asian Sewist Collective. You can also help us by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's AsianSewistCollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you'd like to be featured on a future episode at AsianSewistCollective at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts, Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline. This episode was researched by Jaina I. Morimoto, produced by Mariko Abe, and edited by Leslie Reem Hunt and Henry Wong. Thank you so much to other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective Podcast, and we'll see you next week.